want to take the opportunity to welcome all of our visitors, all of our guests, all of our longtime attenders. Like I said, I don't care who you are. I'm just glad that you're here. And, uh, and if this is your first or second week here at Covenant Church, I just want to invite you to fill out a Connect card there at the back. Uh, fill it out and then put it in the little black basket right there and we'll get in touch with you and you can get on our weekly email list and that's all good because we have a lot of different cool things going on here at Covenant. One of them being our Sunday lunch which is after this service this morning. So if you weren't planning on staying for lunch, please stay for lunch. We also have donuts so if you get bored with my sermon you can go out there and get your sugar rush, right? I know some of you will do it. No hate, it's all good. So my name is Ben Espinoza and I serve as the pastor of community life here at Covenant Church. And this morning, we'll be finishing up our series called Ask, where we deal with some of the tougher questions that people have about Christianity. And this has been a great series for me personally, because it's helped me to think through why I believe and what I believe it, and also because it helps me to better explain my faith to people who do have those questions. And I hope that this series has been a blessing for you as well. And this morning, we're going to be tackling another question that I guarantee that most of you have had in this room this morning. But before I get to answering that question, I want to tell you a story about when I was growing up in middle school and in high school. So that was a little while back. So when I was growing up, my youth group, we do this door-to-door evangelism where we go across town and go to different neighborhoods and hand out tracts to people. And we did that all the time. Now, for the record, I liked doing this quite a bit, not because I thought it was an effective tool for evangelism, but because you got to talk to some really interesting people. I remember one time we went to this one person's house, and as he opened the door, this whole cloud of smoke just came out with the door with him. And I'm 100% certain that he wasn't burning something in the kitchen. And there was another time, uh, as soon as I started talking to this lady, she starts to slowly close the door while looking me squarely in the eyes before finally just slamming it in my face. However, I was able to have lots of good conversations with people who either knew Jesus or didn't want anything to do with Jesus. And time and again, the people I spoke with who didn't care to hear about Jesus either responded one of two ways. Either they would say that they don't care about Christianity, or they'd say this. They'd give me this answer. If God is so good, why can his people be so bad? And ever since I started to hear this objection to the Christian faith, it's always been one that I've had trouble answering. Yes, it's, for me, it's simple to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For me, it's simple to believe in the historicity of the Gospels. For me, it's, it's, it's possible to be a Christian and believe in science. That's all good. It's all good stuff. But this particular objection is one that a lot of people can't get past. And sometimes, can you blame them? Now, most of what we covered in the series has been some of the more intellectual challenges to Christianity. Why you can believe in the resurrection. Why you can believe in the historicity of the Gospels. Why you can be a Christian and still embrace science. But this one is a narrative-based objection. And it has its grounding in history, which I'll show you in a minute. You know, we need to be honest. People who have borne the name of Christ have done some pretty ugly things. And for many people, this is the primary reason why they don't want to even be a Christian. Maybe some of you today are in that boat. And this is probably one of the toughest objections that people can have to the Christian faith. And honestly, it's been something that I think we all struggle with. So what I want to do this morning is provide an answer to this question. If God is so good, 
how can his people be so bad? And ultimately, I want to point us all back to Jesus because Jesus holds the key for us to understand how to answer this difficult question. But before we do, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll open our hearts and our minds to the different truths that you want for us this morning. I pray that you'll answer our doubts. I pray that you'll answer our questions, Lord, and that you'll turn us to you and help us to have that right focus on you this morning and the rest of this week. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So as I said, this question, if God is so good, how can his people be so bad, is one that is based on a particular narrative that is grounded in history. In other words, it's a story that's been going down for the ages. And because of this story, people have a hard time reconciling the teachings of Christianity based on love and forgiveness and peace with what people have seen the church do throughout its history. And here's what I mean. Throughout history, you see people bearing the name of Christ doing some pretty unchristian things, and there are many of them. Okay? You have the Crusades where the church sanctioned wars against Muslims and Jews in the Middle Ages to take back the Holy Land, Israel, for God. And if you've seen the movie Kingdom of Heaven, that's what it's all about. You know what I'm talking about. There were military campaigns where average men were enlisted to go on these crusades so that they could receive forgiveness for their sins. And you know what happened as a result of these crusades? Thousands of people on all sides of the war died. Women were raped and murdered. And the cause of Christ was furthered through force and by violence. And then you get up to the 1500s when you have the Spanish Inquisition, where the Spanish monarchy wanted to maintain Christian orthodoxy throughout their empire. So they ended up deporting Jews and Muslims. And the records indicate that over 150,000 people were deported from Spain, while around, well, around 3,000 people were executed because of their beliefs. And around this time, too, you have European explorers who have colonized distant lands through force. They've subjugated cultures, forced them to give up their native religion and convert to Christianity, and killed a bunch of people in the process. In other words, this was a convert to my culture and my religion or die kind of approach to advancing the cause of Christ. Now, these are only a few of the bigger instances of Christians behaving badly throughout history. But I'm only up to the 16th century people, okay? There's a couple more that we need to talk about. John Calvin, who many of us look to in the church for theological wisdom, personally oversaw the execution of a man named Servetus because he didn't believe the right things about God. Now, Servetus was burned at the stake. What some people will say is that Calvin actually wanted him beheaded because it was a less forceful execution. I don't care. You're still killing somebody. You can't really, you know, parse it out. It's still bad. And moving on, up until the 18th century, the majority of Christians were supporters of slavery. In some ways, slavery was just a normal part of life. Many Christians throughout history didn't think anything of it. And when the debate over slavery intensified in the 1700s and 1800s, many Christians actually used scripture to justify their support for this horrible institution. One leader in the Confederacy said this. He said, slavery was established by Almighty God. It is sanctioned in the Bible in both Testaments from Genesis to Revelation. It has existed in all ages, has been found among the people of the highest civilization and in nations of the highest proficiency in the arts. 
And even after slavery was abolished, there were still many people who claimed the name of Christ, but would still discriminate against their brothers or sisters who looked differently than they did. And even today, we see pastors who preach the good news of Jesus fall from grace. It seems as though at least once a month you see a pastor fall from grace because of an affair or because of pride or because they stole money from their ministry. You know what I'm talking about. We see it all the time. And you see churches that picket funerals of dead soldiers because they personally don't think that this country is worth dying for. So throughout history and even today, you see people parading themselves as Christians, but doing things that were, un, that were decidedly un-Christ-like. Now, when somebody who isn't a Christian looks at all these atrocities committed by Christians, can you blame them for having some reservations about whether or not this Christianity thing is all it's cracked up to be? I remember in, in seminary, one of my professors uh, told the story of one of his friends who was an atheistic philosophy professor. And this philosophy professor wrote dozens of textbooks that have been used in colleges and universities across the nation. And this philosophy press professor was actually more of a seeker than he led on, okay? He wanted to test the waters of Christianity on a regular basis. And what my professor told me was that this man would go to church every single Sunday. He would read his Bible and he would pray all the time, but he was still a committed atheist. And my professor asked him one day, he said, I see you do these Christian things. You pray, I see you cry in church, you read your Bible. Why aren't you a Christian? And this atheistic philosophy professor said this. He said, I won't become a Christian because I'm afraid of who I'll become. How do you answer someone who says, I don't want to become a Christian because I see all the bad things that Christians do? Now, in order to really kind of answer that question, you have to go to, back to God's word and get, get God's perspective on this, okay? And before I go any further, I want to say this about God's word. This is the ultimate source of guidance in our lives, okay? It is light for our path. It is nourishment for our souls. And God uses his word to transform us from the inside out. So with any question, any question that we have about God, we've got to go back to God's word first and foremost. And here's what God's word has to say, okay? There was a time once when humanity and God walked with one another. There was no distance between God and humans. God walked with humans in the Garden of Eden, and everything was good and perfect. But humans disobeyed God, and that is when sin entered into the world. And when I say sin, I mean those things that we do that separate us from God and from one another. And when sin entered into the world, human beings became corrupt, and everything we do is tainted because we desire things that are contrary to God's will and word. And God said that in order to make this situation better, in order to take away the sins of the world, that he would one day send a Redeemer a savior, and that person is Jesus Christ. And many times we look through the Old Testament, we tend to paint or point to these heroes that we have, Abraham and Joseph and David and Solomon and Elijah, and we trumpet all of these true men of God. But we often dislike looking at the dark underbelly of the Old Testament. Moses was one man who led the Israelites out of Egypt and he actually killed a guy before all that happened. And he was sent into exile as a result. 
David, who we champion as a man after God's own heart, committed adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. He had her husband killed in battle as a result. Solomon, who was the wisest man who ever lived, had like 700 wives and slept with a bunch of women who weren't his wives. There's a lot wrong with that sentence right there, okay? And you know what? His heart was led astray by these women, and he ended up worshiping other gods, and his empire fell as a result. And don't get me started on God's people, the Israelites. They turned away from God at every single moment that they possibly could, and they started to worship things that weren't God. And the thing is that God never excuses the sins of the people of the Old Testament. He always uses sinful people, but he never excuses the sin. So you read scripture, and you see these people who claim to know God and actually do know him and love him in a way, and they also displease him time and again. What does it say in the Old Testament? Great sinners need a greater Savior. And that's where Jesus comes into play. By paying the ultimate price for our sins on the cross, Jesus has made a way to reconcile us back to God. So Jesus says, look, all that sin that you do, all of the war, all the fighting, all the conflict, all the hate, all the evil, evil stuff that you always do, I'm going to take it upon myself and I'm going to pay the penalty for you. And if you put your faith and your hope and your trust in me, I'm going to give you life abundant and eternal. And the Bible says that everyone falls short of the glory of God. Every single person, those who know Jesus and those who don't. The Apostle Paul was a man who actively campaigned against and attacked the followers of Jesus. In fact, he held the coats of people who stoned the very first martyr, Stephen. Paul writes this in 1 Timothy. He says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now notice how Paul doesn't say, I used to be a sinner, I used to be the worst of sinners. He says, I am the chief of sinners. I still am the chief of sinners, but I was shown mercy, mercy and I am still shown mercy. Now, what is God, God's perspective on all this? Every single one of us are enemies of God. All of us who love Jesus and follow Jesus are guilty of some pretty awful things. Now, I want to let you in on something here, okay? This sermon is radically different than the sermon that I was actually going to preach this morning. I was going to say, you know, yes, look at all the horrible stuff that Christians have done. But look at all the good stuff as well. We've, we've founded hospitals and orphanages and schools, and we're the first in, to respond in disaster relief and all that. But you know what? Instead of trumpeting all the good that the church has done, I think we're better off trumpeting all that Christ has done. Because we as humans always fall short 
but he never does and he never will. Amen? I want to take a moment to read to you one of my favorite psalms of all time. And I want you to reflect on the nature and character of the triune God. And as I read, I want you to think of all that Christ has done for you. Christ is doing for you right now and all that he will do for you in the future. Psalm 103. Praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone and its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to do his precepts. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, my soul. The question isn't, if God is so good, how can his people be so bad? The question is, if people are so bad, why is God so good? If you look at the history of humanity, you see one huge story of oppression, of slavery, of war, of genocide, of death. And sometimes we Christians have fallen trapped to these things. And yes, we need to repent of our roles in these things. Crusades, inquisition, slavery. We need to repent of all that stuff because we still do it today. But God has looked at all of humanity throughout history and said, I'm going to make a way to save them because they don't know any better. And that's what Jesus has done for us. He has covered all of our sins through his death and his resurrection. All the bad stuff we've ever done, the war, the hate, the slavery, the discrimination, the persecution, all the sin, it's covered by Jesus. But not only does he cover it, he empowers us to live as agents of grace in this world, pumping peace and love and justice into the lifeblood of this world, preparing it for his return when he restores it back to himself. In other words, he empowers us to embody the fruit of the Spirit, peace and love and freedom and impartiality, encouraging others and leading us to be perfect as he is perfect. 
Because we, when we do these things, we're living out the goodness and the grace that he's brought forth in our lives. And we draw people into the gospel the more we look like Jesus. So if God is so good, then why are his people so bad? Yes, we Christians have done some horrible things throughout history, and there's no excuse for it. But we're human, and we fall short every single day, just like everybody else. But we cling to Christ, who is our true hope and our true life. And while grace has covered our sins, we seek daily to follow Jesus, because he is the only hope for any sort of redemption and reconciliation in this present and in the future age. And as we wrap up this series on tough questions of Christianity, there's really one major thing that you should take away from this. The best evidence for Christianity is a life transformed by Jesus. Yes, it's great to know that believing in the resurrection is logical. Yes, it's great to know that you can trust the historicity of the Gospels and the Bible as a whole. And it's great to know that Christianity and science are fully compatible But none of these arguments will mean anything to anyone if your life doesn't look like Jesus. Everybody likes Jesus, okay? In the Gospels, you see a merciful, forgiving Savior who challenges the arrogant in this world and cares for the plight of the downtrodden. Everybody likes Jesus. But when we as Christians claim to know Jesus but don't act like him, people have some serious concerns. That's why so many people say, I like Jesus, but I don't like the church. Because sometimes we as Christians don't look a whole lot like Jesus. But in order to reach a world for which actions are everything, what we believe and teach about Jesus should be everything evident in our own lives. If Jesus has transformed us from the inside out, why don't we look more like him? The short answer is that we're human and we're still caught in this tension between being sinners and being saints. And we need to be honest about that with people. We're not perfect and we shouldn't expect anybody to be perfect. But what we should do is continuously point to Jesus with our lives and with our words because he is the one who is saving us and he is the one who is coming again to redeem this broken creation back to himself. And as we wait in this gap between the resurrection of Christ and his glorious return, he's given us the imperative to celebrate this communion meal every time that we get together. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up right now. And as we reflect on all that Christ has done for us, I invite you to come up here, take a piece of bread, dip it into the cup. Jesus told us that the bread is a symbol of his broken body and the juice is a symbol of his shed blood. And as we come together to share this meal, we're reminded tangibly of all that Christ has done for us, all that Christ is doing for us, and all that Christ will do for us. And he continually forms us and shapes us into his own image. Let this be a reminder to you that all the evil we've ever done has been covered by Jesus at the cost of his life. And let this be a reminder of the kind of Savior whom we serve, one who willingly lays down his life for others. Will you stand and pray, for, pray with me? Dear Heavenly 